Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about change. I've been thinking about how we can make a purposeful shift in experience and emotion. And I've been thinking about our convoluted efforts to control and protect our existence and our hearts. These well-intended maneuvers, both physical and psychological, that keep us stuck, stressed, and depressed, but alive. My guest today is Kelly Miner, Ph.D. Kelly is a personal transformation therapist. Her approach to therapy draws from wisdom traditions as a way of bridging conceptual knowledge toward embodied understanding. She's been a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford University in the Departments of Psychology and Psychiatry, and she is a recipient of the prestigious Narsad Young Investigator Award and the NIMH National Research Service Award for her research aimed at preventing depression in women. Welcome, Kelly, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's so nice to have you, and I, I want to start with um, talking a little bit about your practice, because it, it's very unique in a lot of ways, and one of the ways that it's, it's especially unique is that there are many ways to engage with you, including short retreats, long retreats, short-term courses, and long-term circles. And so I was wondering if you might just start there, like why the variety of options um, and, and what are kind of the differences between those ways of engaging? Mm. Yeah, you know, I guess there's a lot, of, a lot of ways to approach that. One is I was a just traditional therapist doing one-on-one work with women and on my own was going to personal retreats, so going off to the woods every month for three or four days by myself, going to two-week silent retreat with groups, some more kind of spiritual practice. And then I just realized, wow, these need to be integrated. Like, not just for me, but they need to be integrated for my women, for my clients. So that's kind of one level. You know, another level is um, my women, my female clients who do both, right? They, they work one-on-one with me, typically on the phone, they're in a long-term circle or they come to a weekend retreat. They just say that they get very different things, very different experience, very different growth from the different settings. So with me, you know, they, they know me for years. They, they know and trust that I love them. I think in many ways they love me. You know, it's a very much kind of one-on-one, intimate, safe, loving relationship. They come into my home in a circle and suddenly are able to see, you know, all the ways that they shield their heart. When we opened, you said the convoluted attempts at shielding our hearts. So when they're in in my home with a group of women, suddenly each woman gets to notice, wow, like, um, here's one of the ways I try to protect myself. You know, I I run around like a caretaker. I see someone's tea is nearly empty and I offer to fill it when really I'd rather just sit here. Or, um, you know, someone looks timid or afraid, and then I go to try to draw them out or ask them questions. Or, right? So in a group context, I think it's very powerful for us to realize, oh, these are the ways that I move off my center. 
Like I move off just being my genuine, my genuine being. Like, you know, two-year-olds aren't doing that. Three-year-olds aren't doing that. <laughs> They're not um, being anything other than who they are. And so in a, in a group context, I think it's a really powerful opportunity to notice that. I love the word you used, integrated, like that that's the one of the key elements is integrating um, through these different approaches, these different aspects of self that are all um, working to sort of reconnect, as you said, from what was maybe lost or not practiced as much um, from the, the two-year-old or the three-year-old. And, and when you talk about your work, you talk about uncovering the essential nature and wisdom within each of your clients, regardless of the format. And just listening to you speak, I can imagine like the different parts coming coming together for the, the individuals. From your um, focus, what are those key elements that you're working to integrate? Well, um, I guess... You know, it's interesting. I haven't thought of that. I guess what I'm stumped on is that I'm working to to integrate. It's so interesting. It, it's got me stumped. It's like a verb, like I'm doing it, as opposed to... Um, Supporting them in doing it or facilitating them in doing it. And, and you use yeah. a lot of words to describe what you do. You said sometimes you're a hostess, sometimes you're a mentor, sometimes yeah. you're a leader, sometimes you're a coach, sometimes you're a psychoanalyst, right? So, yeah. so you've got a lot of hats in... in um, in that magic bag. Yeah, yeah. I get what you mean, I, I, and I get the question. It's just interesting that I've never, it's the first time I'm just struck. I guess I'm realizing something right now, which is that consciousness itself is what does the integration. So I guess what I do is I simply provide a context. So I, I provide the living room or the holding space or delicious food or comfortable blankets or, you know, um, a space where the boundaries are set in terms of why we're here and what we're doing, which is noticing what is not me so that I can come to know what is me. And the integration of who I've mistaken myself to be, like my, my ideas of who I am, the integration of that with the realization of who I genuinely am, which is not my roles, not my adjectives or nouns or verbs. Um, you know, it's this, this pure consciousness, this life force energy that manifests as ideas and doing and roles and etc. I think by repeatedly being exposed in this context, those two almost seamlessly, effortlessly integrate themselves. So in an interesting way, it's the first time I've realized I think integration is actually kind of a very natural, even passive, natural, organically unfolding occurrence if given time and space. So So how cool is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So suddenly I think really what I'm providing is time and space, which I think is what I've been saying all along when... When people say, um, you know, I was talking to Nellie, my assistant, the other day, and um, I was saying, I want to have a weekend retreat for the women who are in the circles. And, you know, these are the weekends and these are the number of days. And she said, okay, 
like, what are we putting on the website? What is it that we're doing? What is it that you're teaching? And I said, I don't know, we're, we're hanging out. <laughs> and she said, Kelly, you can't advertise a retreat saying we're hanging out. Like, you have to have the purpose and, you know, the function and the takeaway. And, and I was like, well, that is the purpose. That yeah. is the function. That yeah. is the takeaway is, you know, we, we've spent, we spend so much time together teaching and listening to one another and, you know, um, kind of doing with one another, learning. And this is simply going to be the space where we be. And, you know, we, we might spontaneously turn on the dance lights next to the barn and dance or spontaneously turn on a movie and watch Under the Stars or, or we might be napping or we might be eating or it might be often um, nearly every day there will be time that I sit in the orchard and just kind of fall into a deep meditative state. And so I might be sitting there in a deep meditative state while people are reading books or drinking wine or napping or... Um, I might be the one chatting and, and drinking wine and, you know, eating cheese and someone else might have dropped into meditation, Like just the space, the space, to, right. For, for the be. next authentic action that arrives and derives from, um, inward, uh, yeah, from being, yeah, from being to, to, to happen, um, and so let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about the, and you've mentioned it already, the authentic self. And um, because I, I, I think there's less conversation about that than is warranted. And, and hopefully it's beginning to shift, but, but that that is really the key. Um, and, and people have different approaches of how we get there. But let's talk a little bit about what the authentic self is and um, what, it's like living from that place of our authentic self in how that shifts our lives. And then we'll kind of dive more deeply and play with it. Yeah. Well, um, again, I think that's a place we can, we can enter at so many points or levels. So I think the way I experience authentic self is really through its opposite. Um, it's so much more notable to me, palpable to me, when I'm living or moving from someplace other than my naturalness. Uh, I would call it contrived. To me, it feels contrived. It's so... There, there was a circle at my home on Sunday and someone walked through the room and that uh, we were taking a five-minute break, and I was sitting, petting my dog, resting. And when she made eye contact with me, I felt myself smile, and I could feel the contrived nature. And I love this woman. I haven't seen this woman in 16 months since Shelter in Place. Our circles have moved online. She walked through the room. My heart lifted. I felt so much love for her. And I could feel that the muscles in my face kind of forced a smile. It was so interesting. And as soon as I noticed it, the muscles dropped, slack. I can feel love for her as she walks through the room without kind of forcing a smile. It was so extraordinary. It actually speaks to some of the power of the circles, is because the context, we have a full day set aside where the boundary, the context, the invitation is 
to notice when I move in a way that's contrived, whether that's the personality. You know, in my case, it was smiling because that's what you do when someone smiles at you. As opposed to allowing myself to remain in a relaxed state um, with any, without any attempt to kind of force a relational smile or a relational cue. So often for me, authentic self, um, I don't know that there's any way to move toward or work toward authentic self because it seems to me that you kind of start with the wrong foot, right? It's almost like an inauthentic, right? It's a a striving attempt toward naturalness. But instead, man, it's, it's painfully easy for me right now. I can feel anxiety. Mm-hmm. I can feel striving. I can feel wanting to speed up my response mm-hmm. for fear of having a gap that's too long or silent. Or so, so to really recognize that all day long, every human being is living with this. The, the not have, it, right? That's what I'm hearing you saying. Like, it's so, yeah. it's so much easier to identify the not it. You know, and, and you yeah. can notice when it's the it, but like the not it jumps out you f- at you first. Like, okay, this is not an authentic self because it feels different. It feels, as you're saying, contrived or, or put yeah. on or um, a habitual pattern in some way. And, and what I heard you just do, um, ex- describe in that moment was, and I want to talk about this a bit, um, and I also want to talk about later on the difference between the striving and the expansion. So that's on my, on my outline, and we'll get to that because it's so important. Um, but, but what I heard you describe was what you did in that moment was genuine relating to self. And that seems like a linchpin to living a more authentic and expansive life. So maybe we can talk a little bit around that as like what it is and then what blocks it yeah well for me um i think for each person will be different for me a big concern is that i will somehow inconvenience the other and if i inconvenience the other they'll be upset and if they're upset they'll leave and if they leave i'll be alone so abandonment um I think for most of us, this is just my way of looking at it, is that the risk of genuinely relating to my own being, especially in the company of others, which is where authenticity seems to be uh, a concern, is when it comes to others. Most of us, when we're alone in our homes, you know, we, we pretty much do our own thing. We're relatively authentic. It's especially, especially for women when we're with others, is where, uh, he's mentioned the linchpin. That's where we notice that we get kind of tangled up for the most part. And what I notice is that usually that maps to fear of abandonment or fear of engulfment. So somehow, you said not it, if somehow how I am genuinely in this moment is not okay, basically it tracks down to mommy or daddy won't accept me as I am. And they've got the keys to the car and the money for the groceries, so I've got to somehow reorganize my being, reorganize how I'm showing up in this moment to basically keep them happy and keep me safe. And I I really, at least my experience with myself, is that 
when I'm in the presence of another person, this is very much alive. Usually it's quite deep under the surface, but it's there. Even I was leading a guided meditation uh, two days ago for a women's circle, and they know that sometimes when I drop in to a level of um, meditation where there's just no speech, that I can go silent for many minutes at a time. And I share with them that I sometimes feel anxious after the meditation that I wasn't guiding them enough or that I wasn't using enough language or do they get bored when I'm silent for a long period of time or do they get confused or distressed? So it's to me, it's this sense that genuine relating to the self has this deep vertical kind of orientation. And that will feel initially like I'm risking the horizontal connection with the people around me. It turns out that's not true. It turns out that as I relate profoundly, deeply into my own being, my heart, my gut, the body, what the emotions are experiencing, if I relate deep enough, there's this almost magical, paradoxical effect where I'm profoundly interconnected horizontally with the people around me. But of course, the personality, the ego was developed um, as a reaction to, to the fear that that might not be true. That if I'm just who I am, mommy and daddy might not love me, and that could threaten my existence. So I kind of always stay on the surface. Sometimes I think like a water bug. I stay on the surface. I don't relate too deeply to my own being, my own self, my own preference, my own desires my own feelings, my own thoughts. I kind of stay on the surface. I stay relating outward in order to attempt to stay safe, which is kind of heartbreaking, really. So I want, I want to invite our, our um, egos into the conversation because one of the things I, I, when I invited you on this show, I said I really wanted to talk about was um, how we befriend the ego without letting it rule the roost. And, and I was thinking about when you said, you know, we mostly abandon our authentic self when we're with other people. Um, but I know I tend to, and I'm sure others do too. We can even do it when we're alone because yeah. of the ego, right? And that the ego and all this, um, has, has taken up this, uh, or we have, you know, because we're not separate, um, but with our ego, this false sensibility to control, right? It's all the shoulds. It's all the false narratives that are telling us, um, you know, how we need to be different, what we need to be doing and all that. Um, that's maybe a little separate from our authentic desires in, in any moment or can be um, because it's got these ideas of what we need to do and who we need to be and how we need to be to be um, to, to stay alive, right? To survive. Um, what has your work been with integrating and, and becoming more aware of the ego's role and how it can kind of pull us off our, our center? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the work I do, largely the foundation is acceptance commitment therapy, which is what I was lucky enough to have my residency in while I was going through midlife crisis, like 20 years ahead of schedule. Um, 
And so I use that, that the foundation for ACT is, can I be open in the present moment to what is? So mindfulness, you know, can my mind, the mind that's usually creating a future, creating a past, creating a narrative or an evaluation of some sort, I usually say if there's more than one word, the mind's having its way with you, right? It's, it's creating some sort of narrative about the moment, as opposed to actually meeting the moment, you know, um, tingling, tightness. You know, my, my toes are tingling. So can I bring my mind to meet my toes, to meet the tingling in my toes? I'm sitting in a chair with my feet propped up. So if the mind's making two words or more, it's most likely in the future, in the past, or in some kind of narrative, which is really a split from what's genuinely happening right now in my heart, in my physical body, in my experience. So I'm going to call that like an overlay. Some people, someone the other day said it feels like being on the other side of the focus room, glass like a glass, like a separation. Some people call this duality. So here I am genuinely relating to this moment, to myself as an experiencer, to myself as just a being, an organism. And then the mind comes in. You mentioned shoulds. The mind comes in and has its take, has its story, has its narrative, has its interpretation. Um, starts thinking about the future, starts thinking about the past. So just before our call, actually about 14 minutes before our call, I was um, resting on the ground with my two dogs. They were playing tug-of-war with a little teddy bear. And I was having my cup of tea, and I had lit a candle, and I was looking at the candle, and just felt so at ease and so much love it could break my heart this little puppy, little foster puppy, playing tug-of-war with a teddy bear with my very old dog. And truly it felt as though my heart could burst. And then my mind came in and said, well, I guess I should, like, go set up the room for this call. (laughs) And in a split second, this openness, connection, genuine relating to the being, beingness, felt sense, um, was closed down momentarily by a thought of what I should be doing rather than this to make me safe in the future. Now, part of the work I do about reclaiming authenticity or reclaiming naturalness is that that thought doesn't have to successfully foreclose on what I was feeling in the heart and the body. I can actually train in experiencing that thought, the sound of that thought, as no different than the sound of birdsong, which was outside at the time, or the sound of these dogs, you know, kind of wrestling with this teddy bear. So what can shift is the mind that is interpreting the present moment that overlays a should, overlays a thought. I can just hear that and witness that as thought. It's like an option. It's just like an additional stimulus that occurs. And in this case, you know, I got a little uptight for a split second, like, oh, yeah, you know, I started to buy it, started to buy the thought, and then realized I had 14 minutes. That's how I knew it was 14 minutes. And 
relaxed back down into my tea in the tug of war. I actually took a photo of the dogs and sent it to my daughter. It's her puppy. And, you know, after a few moments, got up and made my cup of tea to come sit with you. Um, So I guess it's, you know, what ACT offers and why I find it really helpful is it provides a teaching and a framework for, look, there are these thoughts. And if we're not careful, if we don't have perspective, we can just experience thoughts as reality. And in any given moment, a thought can come grab you by the throat and drag you out of your genuine experience of your heart and your body, usually connectedness with others and with self, and foreclose on the moment. And instead, we can begin to recognize that thoughts are just thoughts. I mean, they're just like a 200 millisecond neural transmission through the brain. They're they're so tiny, there's no brain imaging machine that can catch a thought. You have to bundle like 30,000 thoughts together to be able to see it on an MRI machine, on an fMRI. So here's this really um, powerless neurochemical electrical transmission, a thought. You know, you should really get up and get ready for this call. And on the other hand, if we don't see it as that, it's so powerful it can completely foreclose our life, foreclose our, our heart experience, our genuine relating to being genuine relating to preference at any given moment. Because without the awareness in that moment, what you would have done is reacted to the thought without having that moment of choice that came in, of awareness and then realization and then choice, right? So so you could act rather than react just automatically from the thought. Um, One element that that's... Um, then now for me bringing into this mix is then how we can trust ourselves as our own authority and reassure the ego um, when it arises and feels threatened because that all happened in that moment for you. Yeah. I'm not really into reassuring the ego. I mean, sometimes I am. Sometimes I I, I, I tend to laugh and um, the way I work is a little... Uh, maybe sometimes seemingly unprofessional. I make lots of jokes and laugh and um, play with the ego. And, and so I'll sometimes, you know, joke about saying to the ego, like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know, that's important. We'll get to that later. Um, but really, I'm not into trying to argue with the ego or talk sense into the ego or convince the ego or really be instrumental in any way. Really, what what I've learned is If I can pause and see thinking, see the mind, see the pattern, see the ego, see basically the part of my mind that's trying to protect me at all times, right? It's misinformed. It doesn't work most of the time, but it's trying to protect me. It's got good intentions. If I can just see that for what it is, it's an aspect of mind attempting to keep me safe that really topped out by the time I was eight years of age, Right, so like that's its maturity level. And it runs on nothing but fear. Um, if I can see that and periodically choose from some place other than that, kind of like a let's see approach. Right. Then what I notice is that the ego's absolutely always watching, always learning, always wanting to learn. 
And so it'll come to realize, oh, actually this other way works out. Like, um, I'm not quite there yet in the call. (laughs) And maybe after we hang up today, I'll realize, oh, yeah, see, it was okay to stay on the on the floor playing with my dogs. Probably even good. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't have to, you know, get up and prepare or whatever. Um, actually, the best way I find that the ego kind of learns is when I follow its advice and it doesn't work. And more often than not, I notice that the thing my mind attempts so hard to do to keep me safe usually backfires. And I have an example. I hope my husband would be okay with this. There was a circle, um, first time our circles came back in person since shelter in place. And my husband really wanted to help set up. And uh, he's so genuine and so sweet. He has a lot of caretaker energy in him. And so he's in the kitchen, and there's three women. And we've got it pretty much set. And he says, I really want to help. How can I help? And he's got this little boy energy. And we... We women kind of looked at each other like, we got to get him out of the room. And I said, sweetheart, we've got it. Thank you. And he said, no, 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 I really want to help. And I said, no, honey, really, really, it would be, the best help would be if you just take the dogs, go to the barn. So he comes back a few minutes later, and he's picked, I think it was 200 figs. Oh. <laughs> this huge basket of figs. <laughs> and it's like five minutes before the women are arriving. And he says, I picked these figs. What can I do with them now? And so I looked up in the cupboard and I said, well, you could put them in that big that bowl. Okay. My ego was just trying to kind of get him out of the way. I was trying to divert his attention to kind of get him out of the way. His ego was trying really hard to help. And so he went to get the bowl and as he opened the cupboard, knocked the coffee pot off the <sighs> counter and it breaks in a million pieces and coffee goes everywhere, which, you know, is like another 10 minute cleanup. And He was trying so hard to be helpful, and it was coming from pattern. There was genuine desire, but it was also coming from his personality pattern. My genuine response would be to walk over, look him in the eyes, and say, I love you so much, and the last thing I want is you in this kitchen. Right? Like, please go. (laughs) It's like, I don't really know what to do with these 200 figs right now, you know, Um, But my pattern was that that might break his heart. I was afraid to break his heart. So I kind of distracted him with the task, which I thought would be helpful. It wasn't helpful. So both of our egos got involved, and it ended up costing us like 15 minutes and glass on the ground and coffee, and um, we co-created that. So what got in the way of of me being able to just genuinely, as I am most of the time in our relationship, able to look him in the eyes and say, sweetheart, I feel your genuine desire to help, and I love you so much, and I appreciate that. And what would be most helpful is if you would take the dogs and go. Like, what's scary about that? So for me, the scary part is um, he'll be heartbroken. So so my ego pattern is, if I'm just my true self, it could hurt feelings. And that's painful. I don't want to do that. But then what I really find in my life is the more I try to not hurt people's feelings, 
the more it backfires. And I never really give myself a chance to see that relating from my genuine heart, my genuine preference, I never give myself to see that that's actually what quote-unquote works. (laughs) That when I'm genuine and, and I express from my heart in a genuine, loving way, um, some people will appreciate that. And then we have genuine intimacy, genuine love. Even if their feelings might sometimes be hurt, um, we can still relate and love through that. But the more I, the ego comes in to try to protect me, try to keep people liking me, try to not hurt people's feelings, try to keep them with me, right? Avoid abandonment, avoid engulfment. Um, The more I do that, I don't have the opportunity to see that it doesn't work, right? Or or I don't have the opportunity to see that genuineness actually, quote-unquote, works. So let's talk a little bit about dynamic tension, right? Because I think everyone listening, yeah. we can feel that dynamic tension in that moment. And, um, and, and the choice is there, right, of staying with the discomfort and genuine relating and then um, reacting with a authentic response. Um, and the challenges with that, and you just described sort of what they are intimately in that moment, but I'm thinking about the cultural um, pressures mm-hmm. and kind of patterning that come from a society that's focused on, you know, avoiding discomfort, resisting it, numbing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the aspect of being able to learn to stay with the uncomfortable feelings long enough um, for that genuine relating to happen and from if there's an action that's taken to come from that. Yeah. You know, what just crossed my mind as you were speaking was you said avoiding discomfort. And what crossed my mind is the sincere, sincere relating to self, sincere investigation within oneself at a moment of that discomfort, of turning inward, you know, what is the nature of this discomfort? What is the root of it? And, you know, for each person at any given moment, it'll be different. What shot through my mind just now was, will I be loved? Will I be held in love? Will I be safe? Whether, you know, whether the dynamic tension is across from another person or whether the dynamic tension is just within my own self, sitting alone by myself somewhere at any given moment. So, I don't know, I, I know people are kind of throwing around a term radical turnaround lately. I don't exactly know what they mean, but it crosses my mind that this is a radical turnaround. When I feel discomfort, Rather than going out and away from that discomfort, what happens if I make a U-turn, stay with myself, or return to myself, and investigate what, what is the nature of this? Essentially, what am I afraid of, or what's the nature of this discomfort? I love and, the, the term you've used in relation to that, which is gentle curiosity. 
right? Right as part of that turnaround to have this gentle um, curiosity without judgment of yeah. uh, on sort of all levels, right? Physiologically, the feeling, emotionally, and then um, the mind as well. Like what what is just really being with in all regards in that moment? Yeah. And where does that and lead? that will break that will break one's heart in precisely the way that is necessary. Um, so for the first, I think it was the first eight to ten years of my private practice, there was a term that I was using, um, I was calling it bittersweet grief, because I just had no other way of describing it. Uh, and it would resonate with my clients when they would experience it. Once they experienced it, they were like, oh, bittersweet grief, exactly. So it's kind of like, as I stay with myself, with that curiosity, loving, gentle, intimate curiosity, at precisely the moment I would have left myself, I would have gone into the pattern, I would have tried to stay safe, I would have should it or had to or needed to or, you know, done the pattern, so instead, I stay with myself with this gentle curiosity. What will be inevitable is... I want to feel this before I... Mm. Well, I'm reminded of Derek Walcott, where he says, um, you will essentially meet yourself, greet yourself at your own mirror. So you'll, you'll meet the genuine being that you were about to divorce, you were about to leave, you were about to split from, right? So, so you'll meet that being, and then the heart breaks for all the times you've left, all the self-betrayal, all the, all the time lost, all the time that you related from personality pattern rather than the depth and truth of your being at that moment. So it's, it's wild. It's like falling in love with oneself and um, simultaneously experiencing the depth of heartbreak for all the times that I was not in love with myself. I ran away from myself thinking that myself was not sufficient at that moment. I I just saw this movie. I rarely watch movies. French Exit with um, Michelle Pfeiffer, and there was there was this line. It was extraordinary. Where she's speaking to her son, and he basically says, "What was it like at the moment of my birth? Like, what did you experience when you looked at my face?" And she describes feeling profound heartbreak. And it caught me. Um, she describes, and, and what I experienced was the totality. She describes the totality of any moment that love is there. There's going to be sadness. There's going to be joy. There's going to be anger. There's going to be fear, like the whole thing. And so she describes, and you know, normally if someone says, well, what did you see when you looked at my face? 
you know, someone's going to be like, oh, pure love, and I didn't know I could love it. And that's true, yeah. And she really describes, I never knew I could love like that. And in a split second, um, I felt the totality. Uh, I hadn't thought of that, and it just crossed my mind that I think that's what I'm describing. I, I think you are, and I think that 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 takes a, a trust and a bravery and a courage and a knowing that it will be okay to allow ourselves to go in a place and you know, voluntarily seek it where it's going to all be there. Um, mm. and, and if we don't have that underlying confidence that will, it will be okay. I'm thinking you, you highlighted the, the aspect of the difference between expansion and striving that we just briefly touched on earlier in the show and the idea that when you're striving, you're leaving yourself and when you're expanding, it's the opposite. And, um, I know you, you talk about asking oneself the question, does this support my expansion and support my true being, my essence, or is it costing me something and spinning off myself? Um, and it's a cost and a benefit, right? Because if you're spinning off yourself, you're losing that genuine relating and that authentic self. Um, but maybe you're saving yourself from the the flip side of that, which is the immensity or the totality mm-hmm. um, of emotion and experience. And, and if that's too scary, if we haven't learned that that's actually a safe place, even in its immensity, um, it does make sense that we might try to organize our lives to avoid it. Um, of course. Yeah. So, so let's talk. Well, oh, go ahead. There's a, there's a, there's a problem there. Yeah. <laughs> there's a trick there. <laughs> um, so, in order to be willing to open to the totality, to the totality of being which the mind, the ego, can't do, right? It can't exist there. Um, the mind deals in two-dimensionality, categoric, you know, kind of categorically arranging, um, being here but not there, right? Like, so that's not the totality. So the mind that attempts to keep us safe can't really rest in the totality of what is. So the, the tricky part, the quote-unquote problem, I think maybe this is the nature of the work I do, is... How do I invite someone to resting into the totality? Knowing that there's no way I can assure them it will all be okay. Because the totality um, doesn't deal in that kind of currency or that kind of language or that kind of reassurance. Right? So, um, so lately, what, I guess what I'm realizing is I think that's the magic of the circles. When when the circle's been going about a year and a half, something extraordinary seems to happen, um, which is at some point I'm just leading a guided meditation and someone will break into tears and bliss tears, joy tears, and say, what did I just experience? So it, it has to be in hindsight. Language for the experience has to be in hindsight. And... Um, I'll usually describe self as content, self as context, and pure consciousness, so three levels of awareness. And they'll usually say, whoa, that was pure consciousness. And what, what we find is that when one woman drops into that state for just a few seconds or a few minutes, other women in the circle sometimes drop into that state as well. 
But what's really, really important, and I think the only reason it's happening, is that I've not pre-described it. They didn't sign up for a circle so that they could drop into pre-consciousness or, or um, pure consciousness, right? Like it's, it's not something we were striving for because you can't strive for it. The ego can't take us where the ego can't reside. <laughs> so how do, how do we assure the ego that it will all be okay? Well, we can't really. And instead, I think all we can do is maybe be with some people who are used to resting in that way and who can talk with us about the fears along the way and validate and relate and kind of normalize the fears along the way without, an any attempt, without making any attempt to attempt that it'll all be okay or convince that it'll all be okay. Um, let me try that over. So... So I'll tell you, um, some years ago, maybe this was eight years ago, I was having this experience where in meditation, but I would say spontaneous meditation, I'd just be walking somewhere and um, have a felt sense that if I stayed in the totality one second longer, I would dissolve, like literally disappear, like evaporate from the planet. And part of me knew, of course, that this wouldn't happen, and in that moment, I was so terrified over and over. This was happening many dozens of times per day. I was absolutely terrified. And I'd pop back into duality. And so I was visiting uh, my spiritual teacher, Lama Paulden. I was visiting her at least once a week. And I'd sit on her sofa and tell her the fear. And, you know, with time, I realized, of course, that I didn't dissolve and that it was not only perfectly safe to rest past the dissolution, but that that's where I felt profound wisdom, love, power. It was, in fact, the safest place or state in which to be. After the fact, what I realized is, Paulden never once said, you're not going to dissolve. <laughs> she never once said, it's all going to be okay. She never once said, don't you know I've been resting in that state for like 40 years? <laughs> I'm still here. She never once said any of that. She never tried to convince me. She never tried to change what I think. She never tried to get me to kind of trust her. But she would trick me. She would say, I don't know exactly what you're describing. Can, can you describe it again? <laughs> she was tricking me. So I'd close my eyes and I'd feel into the state so that I could describe it to her. And of course, I'd taste, I'd experience that state again in, the, in her company. And then I'd usually open my eyes and go, oh, well, it doesn't feel scary now. <laughs> and she'd just smile, right? Um, she never tried to reassure. She never tried to convince. She never tried to get the ego's buy-in because the ego's not really going to buy into this. It's not going to buy into, let's rest in that state where you dissolve. Right? Like, it's not going to buy into that. So lately what I'm, what I'm playing with, I think this is maybe my specialty, is how do I rest into the openness, the supreme openness to what is, which necessarily means um, in the face of not knowing what will come next. 
So how do I rest into a state where I'm not preconceiving? And, um, and I'm hearing that her work and your work are, are what you mentioned earlier about supporting the going into and the being with rather than the coercing, controlling, protecting, um, or yeah. convincing, right? It's, it's, it's supporting the, the going into. And I want to talk just in our last few minutes about anxiety, um, you know, mm. and as you were just describing, you were having, you know, that's anxiety throughout the day, mm-hmm. this, this thing. And there seems to be, and, and I'm interested to know if, if you feel like it is unprecedented or, or growing level of anxiety, especially among, and I mean, I think it's, it's all ages and maybe people, all ages and, um, but, but especially I'm hearing it more and more among the sort of younger generation, um, the, the late teens, the, the early 20 somethings, maybe, you know, all 20 somethings, um, this constant, a combination of anxiety attacks and then constant anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, a friend of mine said the other day, that she's feeling, she's sensing, she's quite intuitive woman, this force of being driven to distraction and its effects on everyone. Um, and especially, of course, a generation that was raised with distraction, um, where even things like scheduled play dates and all of this, where there, there hasn't been much time to be bored, to rest into what is, um, or to just be with oneself, maybe in nature or with a book. Right? There's, there's so much kind of competition based on what other people are doing at this moment through social media or comparison mind, or um, you know, competition to get into college or all of this. It's like the bar is just set higher and higher and higher for striving. And being as one is doesn't seem okay. Um, so what I, I guess the, what I play with, my daughter's 20, and when her friends hang out, if they talk with me about fear or anxiety, I always play with, how is it to simply discover what you feel about this? And people throw around the word feel all the time, and then they describe an opinion. Well, I feel like that isn't X, Y, Z. I don't mean that. I mean genuine feeling. Like at any given moment, when I'm feeling anxious, which probably isn't really a feeling, they're probably meaning um, I've got a bunch of thoughts. Sometimes I play with, well, how would it be to just take a 60 to 90 seconds and bring your mind into the physical body, single words, and see what you're actually feeling. Tightness, tingling, heat, racing, fear. And, of course, I've, I've invited them into a trick, which is that if they can bring the anxious mind, whenever one of us is anxious, it's because we're thinking of the future, whether we realize it or not. And so... The trick is you've, you've baited the, the anxious mind that's going to the future into the physical body with single words 
in this moment. And of course, after 60 to 90 seconds, that person is surprised that they feel much more relaxed and at ease and in power. They've kind of returned to themselves. And then at that moment, they might have a chance at genuine relating to self. What is it that I want at this moment? You know, um, what is it that I feel at this moment? Who am I at this moment? And I don't know. I think that could really help this generation. I don't know that they've had much space for that. Yeah. I'm not talking because I'm like, okay, that's it. We're done. That is like the most perfect, I think, um, guidance of of response to that and and i guess then the the things that i'm thinking about is um all of the things you described leading to that are all things that are associated with external striving and pulling ourselves out of authenticity and the authentic self and away from that and these kids lives have been focused with that um in every or so many aspects from from the beginning that we shouldn't be surprised that then that's where they've landed and i guess yeah. maybe my last question in just these last couple of minutes would be um in conjunction with that i'm thinking about the response of psychiatry from what I've seen thus far to those kids are let's put you on you know oh you've got ADD let's put you on Ritalin oh you've depressed let's give you you know antidepressants so you have anxiety well here's some Xanax or and so what is the alternative for people listening who either have you know anxiety depression themselves or have people in their lives who do of finding a therapist, um, how to go about finding someone um, that's a fit and that, you know, is less likely to put them on a medication in their first visit. Yeah. This is, this is a topic actually so close to my heart. Uh, so I was at Stanford transitioning from postdoc to junior faculty and um, truly had a life crisis full-blown midlife crisis early uh, where everything I had planned for my life fell apart within a matter of minutes and life as I knew it, um, profound loss. And then actually just a year later had death experience. So it's so close to my heart because everything fell apart. There was this profound rupture and then I could grow, right? Then I could reevaluate, then I could return to myself, then I could question my life, then I could rebuild and essentially wake up to uh, the anxiety I was experiencing as junior faculty, as postdoc, in my marriage, in the life that I was living that I wasn't quite aware of myself, right? So this is a growth model. Growth model is when distress, dis-ease, usually ruptures our life in some way where we just can't keep on keeping on the way we were, right? Our, our attempts to adapt no longer work. And we have what some people call the dark, dark night of the soul or um, a spiritual emergency or um, it might appear to be a psychiatric crisis. And sometimes it's, it's genuine and true that there's a biochemical imbalance and that psychiatry is absolutely what's necessary and most helpful. And sometimes 
it tells us that we've been living our life in a way that is not genuine, that is not true, that is not in balance with the way that I am as a being. And we can only do that for so long before the whole thing falls apart, the whole thing ruptures. So a growth model and any therapist that works with a growth model works with the fact that when someone's in crisis, that is the starting point, that is the portal. It's actually necessary that there's this crisis, there's this rupture. And, you know, most of my clients are therapists and spend a lot of time talking with them about um, can they find, can the therapist find ground and stability in the fact that their client is falling apart in a rupture, right, um, as the beginning and necessary element of the growth process? So can the therapist be stable, be loving, be present, be attuned, absolutely be assessing whether this is something that psychiatry would would actually be beneficial for versus will psychiatry be pathologizing so that when someone's doing a growth rupture, a crisis point, a breaking point, a breakthrough point, I don't want to throw medication at this person. Or, you know, what they did not too many decades ago was tranquilize and throw them in a hospital. Um, which actually prevents growth, prevents them moving through. It's almost like a birthing process, passing through the birth canal. Um, so I think what someone would do is ask about, do you work with a growth model or do you work with symptom reduction, which is a more kind of adaptive, adaptogenic approach. And both are, you know, both are extraordinary, both are perfect uh, depending on that individual. Well, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. And that got me thinking like this is exactly the conversation I had hoped for. Um, oh, good. So, so gold Go stars ahead. all around. <laughs> oh, good. external validation. Um, I think it was really good you, you stayed on that floor um, and, and connected. So thank you. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. I've been speaking with Kelly Miner. We've been talking about uh, befriending the ego um, relating to self, genuine relating to self, authenticity, and a um, number of connected topics. So again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Ali. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Ah, oh, lovely to hear okay. your voice. Okay, yours yeah. too. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye.